Have you ever wondered if we are alone in the universe? Is there any scientific evidence showing that an intelligent designer created the heavens and the earth? Welcome to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk AM 570 and 910. You may have heard about the debate over intelligent design and Darwinism. Find out what the evidence says about the origin of life and mankind, and just what the experts are saying. Darwin or Design, brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Society. Now your host, the author of Doubts About Darwin and Darwin Strikes Back, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College in Trinity, Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward. We're so glad you joined us today on Darwin or Design. We're coming to you each uh, Saturday afternoon from 5 to 6 on WTBN, AM 570 and 910. And we want to thank our sponsors for bringing this program to you each week. The two sponsors, of course, are the C.S. Lewis Society, an organization which has gone out to the university campuses of the United States and Europe and other parts of the world to present the case for not only a designer, but the case for God having revealed himself as a designer of life and specifically the Judeo-Christian God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Christ, our Redeemer. So we're thrilled to be able to explore this very uh, high-powered debate, the very, uh, you might say, intense debate at this point in history between those who hold to nature having produced us and those who say there's there are fingerprints, there are evidences, there are indicators of a designer. We also, also want to thank the uh, wonderful St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute, which brings the highest quality eye care to you here in not only in uh, the north end of Tampa Bay and Tarpon Springs area where their main office is located, but all over central Florida. Dr. James P. Gills and his son Pitt Gills, uh, the two leading uh, eye surgeons there, are leading a team of high-quality eye care physicians who are bringing excellence with love. Check them out on the internet at stlukeseye.com, or you can call their main office at 727-938-2020. I want to thank Bill Carl for making this program possible, our extraordinary tech-savvy director-producer. We also want to thank Dr. Fuzz Rana out in California at Reasons to Believe, one of the finest organizations in the world today, which is doing outstanding research and publishing their findings on the evidence for a designer of the universe, of life, even of mankind. I am one of Dr. Fuzz Rana's, I guess, most intense uh, fans here in Tampa Bay. I have uh, read, uh, Dr. Rana, several of your books, so we welcome you to Darwin or Design. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be with you. And uh, I salute uh, you and Dr. Hugh Ross as you circulate, I know, on your own among university students and professors, and you are out probably speaking on a regular basis uh, to skeptics as well as people who already accept the Judeo-Christian framework of thought. Is that not accurate? I mean, you're out there quite quite a bit speaking. Oh, yeah. We, we travel around to uh, university campuses, uh, to church settings, uh, even the business firms, just a few weeks ago, I had the, pr- uh, the privilege of speaking at Lucent Technologies in uh, Chicago, just outside of Chicago, to a group of uh, communications engineers and, and scientists. And what was, about, the to- what was the topic? Well, it was about how um, uh, the, the information systems that essentially are part of uh, the molecular systems that constitute life, the information-rich molecules like DNA and, and proteins, have that information structured in a way that's very similar to how uh, communication engineers will structure information when they uh, manipulate information systems. And so it was uh, a very interesting opportunity to talk to 
uh, non-biochemist about how biochemistry really has an interface with engineering in a very provocative way that suggests the work of a creator. That's tremendously important, and I, of course, uh, read your book, Origin of Life. I, I hope I have the title correct. And, you do. And then uh, I believe the name of the title on your book on human origins is Who Was Adam? Is that correct? That's right. Okay. Both books, I believe co-authored by you and Dr. Ross, are fantastic. They're brilliant. I have just, as, a, as it were, given rave review of those two books over and over to my students. My hat's off to you for those achievements. Well, thank you very much. That's kind of you. Yes. And, of course, you're actually educated in my neck of the woods up in Ohio. I'm from a little town not too far north of Lancaster, Ohio, and I believe you got your doctorate at uh, Ohio University. That's right. Uh, yeah, Athens, Ohio. So uh, enjoyed my time there tremendously. I used to take my family down to the Hocking Hills, to you know Ash Cave and Old Man's Cave, and all those wonderful places, and in and around Athens, Ohio. So, uh, could you share before we jump into the blockbuster book that uh, you have just released through Baker, which is the same uh, publisher that brings out my own book, Darwin Strikes Back? I want to get to that in just a few minutes, and we'll explore it during the segments that we have. But you have an interesting story to share. Could you tell us a little bit about how you wound up speaking on behalf of the evidence for design, even though that wasn't your starting point? Sure thing. Well, I uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Um, My father was a nuclear physicist, uh, was a college professor. My mom was a science and math teacher in, in high school and junior high school. And so science permeated our home, education was the god of our, our household, and hmm. my parents kind of encouraged my brother and I very strongly to, to take courses in science and math in high school and really encouraged us to think about careers in science as we were going to college. And so I uh, became interested in biochemistry and, and began taking courses in biology and chemistry as an undergraduate and uh, felt that um, the origin of life and life's history to be explained in evolutionary terms. I didn't really reach that conclusion through any kind of careful consideration of the evidence. This is what my professors, who I admired very much so, were basically espousing. And so I embraced that viewpoint, again, uncritically, uh, and felt very comfortable with it. And when I went to graduate school, uh, it was, again, a very secular environment. Uh, Many of the professors that I knew were atheists and uh, again, that worldview pretty much permeated everything that we were doing as we were learning about uh, biochemical systems. Now, the one difference, though, is that in graduate school, you're expected to do your own research. You're expected to really learn the intimate details of your subject area. And so as I was doing that, I was really confronted for the first time with, again, uh, biochemistry uh, kind of raw, if you will, biochemistry in the intimate most details. And what was astounding to me and this was about 25 years ago now, what was astounding to me is how complex these systems were. And I had taken enough courses in chemistry to realize that when chemists work in the lab, it's very difficult to get simple molecules to do what you want them to do. And here in the cell, you're looking at these incredibly complex systems that not not only, again, are, are again, intricate and complex, but they are incredibly elegant systems, um, sophisticated in the way they operate. There's almost a cleverness in terms of of how these systems work. And that, to me, was very intriguing. And I began to wonder, how do, they, how do scientists really explain where these systems come from? At that point, I wasn't satisfied with just somebody waving their hands and saying, you know, life evolved from a primordial soup. I wanted to know the detailed chemical steps. 
And you were and were, were, you, were you a student, a graduate student at this point when the yes, questioning yeah, began? Yeah. That's right, a graduate student at that point. Mm. And I was about a, a year into my studies. Uh, and, and so I, on my own, began to try to, uh, you know, read the scientific literature. What was the explanation for the origin of life? And as I looked at these explanations, I just simply didn't find them to be very impressive and, and didn't find them to really be uh, adequate in, in my mind, in my estimation. It didn't seem to me that chemistry and physics alone could generate these types of systems. And at that point, I came to the conviction that there had to be a creator. There had to be a mind of some sort that was responsible for at least life's origin and the structure of life at its most basic level. And again, it was both a combination of not really being able to see how chemistry and physics could produce these types of systems, but also it was the nature of those systems. Again, they are just simply beautiful, awe-inspiring, marvelous systems that constitute life at its most basic level. And those two things in combination, again, convinced me that there had to be a creator. And uh, that then sent me on a journey where I began to ask more theologically oriented questions. Well, if there's a creator, then who is that creator and how do I relate to the creator? And about six months into that investigation, I uh, converted to the Christian faith. I felt that uh, Christianity offered the best explanation, the best account of who that creator was, and also explained, in a sense, the human condition better than than any other religious system or philosophical system. And this this would have been uh, somewhere in the 1980s then? That's right, mid, the mid-1980s. Well, I think well, you have an, uh, something very, very important in common with me and with C.S. Lewis, and that all three of us were pretty hardcore, hard-nosed skeptics who, at a, at a major university, found that our skeptical path wasn't really lining up with the evidence so well. And then we found out that there was a creator, of course, and the creator cared about us in the, in the person of Christ. Uh, now, as as you have developed your work, and of course, let me just, uh, if you've just joined the program, Darwin or Design today, our guest on the program today is joining us across the United States in California, where he works at the very important organization, Reasons to Believe, one of the most powerful organizations on planet Earth, which is presenting the case for design and the case for the Christian faith uh, to skeptic, skeptical or secular audiences. His name is Dr. Fuzz Rana, R-A-N-A. And the book we're talking about today the, is the new book, the, the most recent book he's written, The Cell's Design, Cell apostrophe S, The Cell's Design, fantastic book. Dr. Rana, you've actually put, uh, I think, three books out at the time or in your time with Reasons to Believe. Is that correct? That's right. Three <laughs> books and uh, working on another one here. It's kind of slow going at this point, but yeah, I got another one in the works. Okay, well, we'll get to that maybe later on. Uh, Before we cut for a break in about one minute, what is the single most exciting thing that you have found just really shocks people about the design of the cell? We'll come back and talk about many other things. Just give us one little taste of what's what's coming. Well, I I think it's the molecular motors. I'm thinking at this point of, of both lay people and scholars alike. And I think it's just it's the molecular motors that are found inside the cell that really, in terms of their architecture and operation, are virtually identical to machinery produced by human human designers. That to me I think is astounding for, for most people. And, and they can readily grasp it regardless of uh, how much biochemistry they really know. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that your whole chapter on molecular motors comes pretty early, uh, chapter four, and we'll get to that. You're listening today, uh, we're having a fantastic conversation with one of the leading scholars in the world, Dr. Fuzz Rana, and he has given me permission to call him Fuzz and, and instead of Dr. Rana. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Please call me Fuzz. <laughs> okay, I will do that. 
And so we're going to be uh, talking with Fuzz and his work in exploring the details of biochemistry that really show the fingerprints of a master architect, a brilliant engineer and designer who created life, who created these motors, who created the, the databases. And we're going to be uh, tackling that on the next couple segments. You're listening to Darwin or Design on WTB. And I'm Tom Woodward, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570-910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Thanks so much for joining us on Darwin or Design today. We have one of the most uh, amazing scholars in this area of evidence for design who has ever come on this program. And we've had some big ones, uh, Dr. Michael Behe, Dr. Jonathan Wells, we've had uh, Paul Nelson and Steve Meyer, many other top guys who are doing the outstanding research that undergirds the design inference, the conclusion of design. But we have hard, hardly ever gone into the detail of cellular architecture, the nanotechnology, the brilliantly put together artistic uh, intricacies and in, in the, the databases as thoroughly as our author and guest today on the program, Fuzz Rana. Uh, Fuzz, as we've been talking about, is the one of the staff scientists. He works uh, right next to or on the, uh, can you might say, arm-in-arm arm with Dr. Hugh Ross, the founder of Reasons to Believe. And his most recent book, The Cell's Design, you can get uh, at uh, either the Baker Book website or it's probably on the Reasons uh, to Believe website. Isn't that uh, available there on your bookstore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can, we can go to reasons.org if they're interested in okay. getting the book. Okay, reasons.org is be, would be one of my, uh, I guess, recommendations. Go right over there and uh, get the book. We will be carrying it here before long, but today you can pick it up. And, of course, uh, one of the key things that you bring out, Fuzz, at the beginning of your book is that you're sort of building on uh, an earlier scholar, which I, who I just mentioned, Michael Behe, who laid down in the year of 1996 in his book, Darwin's Black Box, the case for evidence of design from micro-machines, nano-machines or systems who have or which have many working parts, all of which seem to be necessary. You take one part away, the machine or system functions uh, shut down, and therefore it seems to have this complexity which cannot be reduced. And I appreciate your pointing out what he did, and you uh, give you know credit, you might say, where credit is due, and then you say, let's move uh, to the next level. You're sort of saying, I recognize what Dr. B has done, but I want to take a slightly different approach and slightly different framework to kind of build on but move beyond what he has said. Could you give us that overview? Sure thing. Well, and in my opinion, I think the most profound evidence for design in any arena of science is biochemistry. And, you know, uh, Michael Behe's work was, is seminal work. And I admire his thinking. I admire his courage. And his work has really impacted me in the way I begin, have begun to think about this whole idea of life stemming from the work of a creator. And so I don't ever want to think, anyone to think that by moving beyond what Behe has done that I somehow... Uh, look to diminish what he's done or, or his accomplishments. Sure. But it, it seems to me that in the last 10 years, while I think the irreducibly complex argument uh, is very effective and very powerful, uh, it seems like it, we just have been fixated on that to the point that we're not uh, recognizing that there's other features in the cell, uh, a lot of features in the cell that independently of being irreducibly complex also point to the work of a creator 
And so what I wanted to do is just kind of expand the conversation beyond irreducible complexity. Again, not saying that that's deficient, but saying that there's much more that we could do. And by bringing to bear a weight of evidence argument, uh, then I think we have a much stronger comprehensive case for intelligent design than, again, just merely looking at one particular aspect of, of the cell's chemistry. And, and some of the things that I point to, in, in some respects, do overlap with the concept of irreducible complexity. Mm-hmm. For example, I talk about the fact that many uh, biochemical systems are chicken and egg systems, meaning that the system has to exist in order uh, for the system to exist, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, protein synthesis is a, a primary example. Uh, um, uh, proteins are very important molecules that carry out all kinds of activities in the cell, help to form the different structures of the cell. There's probably well over several thousand different proteins and even the simplest bacterium that in different types of proteins that have to all exist in order for that system to even be functioning as a living system. But in order to make those proteins, you have to have proteins uh, that are already in place. And, and that type of system is in a sense, a specialized type of irreducible complexity, but it kind of also has its own distinct character to it as well. Um, We talk about in the book minimal complexity of life, where uh, we now know that even for an entity to be recognized, even in its bare form as a living entity, it's got to have several hundred different proteins that exist uh, that are critical in making the cell wall, carrying out... um, protein production, carrying out DNA replication, uh, carrying out energy metabolism. Uh, and, and again, that's type of, a type of irreducible complexity, though it's essentially irreducible complexity applied to the entire organism. Sure. In other words, it's not just individual biochemical systems that have to be irreducibly complex, but uh, the entirety of, of, the, of the biochemical operation in the cell is irreducibly complex and, 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 and irreducibly interdependent. So, you know, there are things that we identify that really do connect with, with Behe's idea of irreducible complexity. But then we talk about, you know, really the emphasis is on the fact that the features that you see that define the cell's chemical systems are the same features that you would recognize in an object or a system that's the work of a human engineer. Uh, the systems in the cell are highly optimized. They're, they're high-precision systems. You have information-rich um, systems that can't be produced apart from the existence of the mind. There are codes uh, that, that lie at the very heart of, the, of biochemistry. There are quality control operations, and, and the list just kind of goes on and on. So what we're trying to do is really, again, just extend the argument beyond what Michael Behe has done. And kind of my hope is that uh, this will stimulate enough thinking that other people will come along and maybe go beyond what I've done here that would be the ideal thing is that we, you know, in science, you know, one person kind of hopefully stimulates the work of other people that in turn stimulates the work of other people. Sure. And you then build a very robust, um, you know, intellectual program. Yep. Well, let me make a, a couple comments, just a couple kudos about your book. Number one, it's overflowing with exciting but yet, I would say understandable detail about the rich complexity of the cell, things that I had never heard about, 
uh, you brought, I mean, you brought more wows per square inch than any book I've read in a long, long time. I tell my students to write wow at the edge or margin of their page when they see something remarkable, and there are just wows scattered everywhere in my book. Uh, Aquaporin, I had never known about this unique channel that allows uh, water, and I guess glycerol, is that it? Some of them are, yeah. are, are allowing other specialized uh, chemicals in and out of the cell. But uh, but do not even allow hydrogen ions through. I mean, that was shocking because hydrogen ions are, are just tiny little things. Little, I guess, exactly. You know, and yeah, so it won't allow those through, but it will allow a little stream of water through through this amazing architecture of this pore, which is so helpfully, and I appreciate all the illustrations you put in your book. Almost every other page or every third, fourth page has a, a very helpful diagram, picture, whatever, and little, you know, um, I guess you call them sidebar discussions. I appreciate those. But uh, one of the things that's striking me is that with this wealth of information that is flowing out of the highly technical study of the cell, uh, it's the, the case for design seems to be virtually you know, more and more overwhelming. And the case for blind, or let's say the brute processes, unintelligent processes of nature, the, the idea that those are, are responsible for this seems to be empty. Is anyone catching on? I mean, who out there have you seen? Can you give us an example of people who have had a aha mo- a moment, at least ca- catching a glimmer of this new way of thinking? Well, you know, uh, the, the group of people who I think get it probably more so than anybody else are engineers, interestingly enough, hmm. because engineers have to build stuff. And, and, I, and you know, I spoke um, uh, right before I mentioned earlier in the program that I spoke at Lucent Technologies, Alcatel Lucent, just outside of Chicago, right. to communication engineers. These guys got what I was saying right out, out of the chute. They realized these are incredibly remarkable systems. Uh, and, and, and what you see this in the cell with regard to the way the information is structured is identical to what they are trying to achieve themselves mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis. But I spoke a few days earlier to medical students at the Houston uh, Medical Center, and they appreciated the biochemistry maybe more so than the engineers did, but they were not nearly as impacted, interestingly enough, by the arguments. Uh, some of them were, but, but, but it, as an audience in its entirety, not so much. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I found that to be very interesting, and I think it just boils down to the fact that uh, they've, they've never really had to build something. And that's, I think, the difference between really appreciating how powerful this evidence is for the work of a mind versus mm. uh, you know, the, the work of blind, undirected processes. Now, I, I, I ditto, you know, I agree totally with what you, you know, expressed about, about both the content and the reaction of those two audiences, um, the, the content of your of your case and the reaction from uh, medical technology, let's say, versus uh, communication engineers. One of the things that I'm observing is that fairly quickly, if they begin to catch the notion of a design, then they begin to say, okay, if there is a design, then that raises the question, who is the designer? Now, your the Ministry of Reasons to Believe, if I remember correctly, and we only have about 45 seconds, does allow the case for the identity of the designer to come up at some point in this discussion. That's right. Uh, we think that the designer is, is the God of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, yeah, we, 
like to take the, 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 the discussion one step further right. and begin to probe the theological implications. Right. And of course, a, a certain a sketchiness of who that designer is can be seen, uh, the nature of the designer, but you have to go to the different set of data, the historical data of Scripture, and, and consider that to figure out who the designer is. Would you agree with that? I, I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but I think what's interesting is, again, the comparison between human designs and what you see mm-hmm. in the cell's chemistry begins to suggest that maybe there's some kind of connection between that uh, intelligent designer that made life, if you will, mm-hmm. and, and the human mind, and that to me finds explanation with regard to the concept of the image of God. You begin, begin to see some shades of that. Okay, well, we'll come back to that. We have a very exciting discussion going with Fuzrana, the biochemist who wrote The Cell's Design. We'll be right back with more discussion on Darwin or design. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570-910-WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, where we're having an incredible discussion today with a very powerful um, writer of a book that is, is powerful in its own right, The Cell's Design. The Cell's Design was released just a few months ago by Baker Books. You can pick it up on reasons.org. That's the website uh, that hosts a tremendous amount of helpful information from Reasons to Believe. Reasons to Believe was launched by um, Dr. Hugh Ross to deal with the questions that are being raised not only in the university campuses today, but all across our culture about God and whether God has revealed himself in science and in history. So I recommend you visit their website. I also recommend that you check out the website of St. Luke's Eye, our wonderful sponsor. St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute enables this program to come to you each week by the encouraging support of Dr. James P. Gills and Pitt Gills and the fantastic staff of doctors and nurses and medical technologists that enable first-rate, high-quality eye care to come to you wherever you live in Central Florida. You can call them at 727-938-2020. That's 727-938-2020. I should mention that uh, this program is airing on a very important day in history. Today is the 45th anniversary of the passing into glory of C.S. Lewis. Yes, November 22nd, 1963, the very exact same day upon which uh, John Kennedy, President Kennedy, was assassinated, uh, was the day that uh, Lewis quietly breathed his last and was gathered, uh, as it were, into the presence of his Savior. And so we remember his great life. Uh, If you're uh, interested in learning more about him, we recommend the book Jack as the greatest biography perhaps ever written. Jack is the uh, massive, uh, it's not that massive, it's about 300 and some pages, but it's a thorough biography, very fun to read, by George Sayer. Uh, We also recommend several other outstanding uh, biographies or books about Lewis are available. One of them is called Not a Tame Lion. That's available on our our own website, apologetics.org. And so we're really thrilled to be able to continue this conversation with Fuzz Rana. Uh, Dr. Rana, you have a, a sizable organizational uh, headquarters out there in California. Where are you located exactly? Uh, we're located in a little town called Glendora, California. It's about uh, 20 miles east of Pasadena. Oh, really? And so you're not too far from the, um, what is it, the J- JPL is out in that area? Jet oh, yeah, yeah, we're just around the corner from JPL. In fact, we have uh, somebody on our staff, a guy named Dave Rogstad, who's semi-retired from JPL, who's really? 
devoting a lot of effort to uh, our work at Reasons to Believe. Wonderful. Of course, JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the uh, organization, you might say the think tank and, and scientific research organization out there in Pasadena that controls and plans and executes many of our space probes. So it's really exciting to have you linked through David Rogstad. Uh, we're right now diving into the heart of this amazing book. The book is called The Cell's Design. It really is kind of a sequel to Fuzrana's uh, earlier book written with Hugh Ross called Origins of Life, which I recommend uh, in my book, Darwin Strikes Back, as the best book available on the topic of the origins of life. Now, let's just ask, I want to ask you, Dr. Rana, uh, Fuzz, excuse me, what is the uh, newest information in your view that really is, like in the last six months, I know you had to probably finish the, the text of the book and get it to the publisher and then things were happening still right and left. Is there anything that you would add to the book? I mean, anything new that is just like uh, builds on the case here in the book? I know I'm hitting this with you or hitting you with this kind of out of the blue. Well, uh, one thing that I would wish I could have been able to put into the book is uh, having to do with how optimized uh, biochemical systems are. And I have a whole chapter just devoted to the fact that the key systems that uh, are part of the, the cell's biochemistry are highly optimized. But one of the, the, the systems that I didn't really talk about is something called intermediary metabolism, which is a mouthful, but it's essentially referring to all the chemical reactions that are taking place inside the cell. And so when a, a cell, let's say, takes a, a molecule of glucose and breaks it down uh, as a way to harvest energy, it doesn't do it just with a single reaction, but rather there's a sequence of reactions that take place where the molecule is step-by-step-by-step by step by step modified, and there's a series of proteins that are also called enzymes that play a role in, in helping that, that, that transformation take place. Mm-hmm. And so typically you'll have these sequence of reactions this is referred to as metabolism that can be linear, then you can have branches, you can have cyclical reactions that are part of the pathway. They all are then interconnected and networked together to form a highly reticulated collection of reactions that take place inside the cell. And if you ever had to have the pleasure of trying to memorize that for an exam, you, know, you realize that this is an incredibly complex system that almost seems to be haphazard if you will, in terms of the way that it operates. And there was just some recent work where a team of scientists actually looked at how robust uh, these, these biochemical pathways were in terms of how they networked with each other. Mm-hmm. And they point out that like, uh, the, the structure of these uh, networks is very similar to a power grid uh, that you know, would, would provide power, electrical power, to a city. And typically, if a, a single power line goes down, you can actually have half the city uh, lose power because it's, there's, a, there's a cascade of errors that will take place hmm. or mistakes or, or failures when one component of the system fails. And so they were trying to understand how robust are, is the network inside the cell in terms of these error cascades. And they actually generated random metabolic pathways and compared them to the ones that you see inside the cell. And it turns out that the cell's pathways appear to be exquisitely optimized in such a way to minimize the extent of any type of error propagation when, when a failure happens in some aspect of, of metabolism. And so it, it really looks as if m- the metabolic systems in the cell are also highly optimized, 
And this was something that I just simply wasn't aware of because the work hadn't been done yet uh, prior to writing the book. So that would have been something I would have added to the book uh, because, again, I think when you see optimization that is, again, characteristic, that to me is evidence for the work of mind because optimized systems just don't happen on their own. It takes a lot of, of, of careful planning to, to optimize um, uh, any type of system or an object. You know, and, and if I can just jump in, one of the, there are two things that really leaped out of, of your book right at, at me and uh, just grabbed me, as it were, by the jugular. Two things. Number one, they have actually, in the research that has been done over the last 20 years or more, they've been able to produce other hypothetical useful letters instead of the four DNA letters, A, T, C, G. And those other letters are not do not work as well as the four that we have in our in our DNA system. Is that correct? That's right. It, it, when you look at the entire structure of the DNA molecule, every one of the components that's part of DNA is highly optimized. It's the just right component, hmm. and that would include the four you know nuclear bases that comprise the genetic letters. You know the A, G, Cs, and Ts that everybody sees when they when they look about look at at, at the structure of DNA. And it turns out that. If those uh, uh, nuclear bases are highly optimized, they turn out to be uh, perfect in terms of minimizing any type of damage that can happen from absorption of UV radiation based on their structure. And again, they're unique compared to the other nuclear bases that could be used. And something else that's very interesting about them is that these are the only four nuclear bases that you could choose that actually would allow the structure of the DNA molecule to have embedded within it something called an even parity code, mm-hmm. which is a, 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 a error detection system that computer scientists and computer engineers will use uh, to detect error when, when, it's tra- when these are transmitted um, you know, during data transmission. Mm-hmm. And it's a very sophisticated uh, yet simple way of detecting error. And that to me is just mind-boggling that um, you know, that type of, of structure would be part of the information systems in inside the cell. Um, and uh, and I, I was reading about your, your chapter on parity code, and that's something entirely new to me. So you're, you're educating an apologist here, and you're, you're loading my gun with uh, rounds upon rounds of uh, intellectual ammunition or scientific uh, data here. The other thing that struck me, if I can get to my second point, is that you said that there are uh, experimental efforts to create, if you will, man-made proteins but when you try to see how well they perform when subjected to potential uh, mutations, a single mutation will cripple them. So the, the man-made uh, proteins are more brittle, whereas the natural uh, protein strands can tolerate a little mutational noise and still function. I mean, yeah, and, ag- and again, that's just simply more evidence that uh, there had to be a superior mind to the human mm-hmm. mind that produced these types of systems. Yeah. Well, the optimization argument is is wonderful, and I appreciate throughout the book, almost every, I think it is every chapter, begins with a comparison between biochemical systems and the greatest works of art from all history, of different genres, different types of art, and, the, and how the author, or let's say the painter, the producer, the artist, can leave their 
you know, their, their known signature, their little sign or their indicator that, wow, this is Picasso or this is, let's say, you know, one of the pre-Raphaelists. I don't even know how to pronounce that. Maybe you can help me on that. <laughs> but uh, but I, I'm amazed that you can see so many indicators of design all converging in one amazing biochemical system. In just about another 30 seconds, where do you think, where are we headed in the next uh, five to 10 years? Just more and more heaping up of these examples? Oh, I think that'll be the case. And then I think we're going to start seeing uh, biochemistry inspire engineering Mm. and inspire human invention and innovation. And that is extremely provocative in terms of the design argument. Yeah. Well, I was struck over and over how you really, uh, throughout the book, you show how good engineering principles are explained. Brilliant design implies or shows or is fleshed out in brilliant engineering solutions to problems. And that's what we see everywhere. And the book that we're talking about today is The Cell's Design, as in the design of the cells. The Cell's Design, how bio, excuse me, how chemistry reveals the creator's artistry. And the author is uh, Fuzz Rana. He is a professor, I should say, a lecturer in biochemistry. He's the um, graduate with a Ph.D. from Ohio University in biochemistry, and he is our leader of this incredible discussion today. We'll be right back with a few more exciting comments with Fuzz Rana. You're listening to Darwin or Design. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Thanks again for joining us on Darwin or Design, where we tackle each week uh, key issues, pivotal, central issues of evidence that bears on the question of whether we are made and created in the likeness of an intelligent, wise, moral God Or are we the result of kind of blind processes, unintelligent forces of nature that sculpted life and sculpted out humanity over eons without any purpose, intent, or meaning? And, of course, this is the biggest topic. This is the biggest debate of all that is raging not only in university campuses but in every nook and cranny of Western culture and around the world. We have with us today on our program one of the best commentators, investigators, you might say biological experts of the uh, biology design side of this debate. He is the author, co-author of two key books that I have read and used with great profit in the last five or so years, Who Was Adam? I actually read that book coming back on a plane from a conference uh, in Hungary, Dr. Rana. And uh, I, I was blown away. I was commenting to the guy sitting next to me. Fortunately, he was a fellow Christian, so he enjoyed my comments. I kept saying, this is fantastic. He says, what are you, <laughs> he says, what are you reading? I said, uh, who was Adam? I said, look at this. And I was talking about, you know, the, the Neanderthal chapter and then the chimp, you know, human DNA chimp chapter. And I was just, I was going on and on. I was just frothing. I wasn't frothing at the mouth, but it was bad. <laughs> I was hooked. And then Origins of Life, as I was preparing my own book, uh, but the sequel of the original uh, History of Intelligent Design, Doubts About Darwin, which was my Ph.D. dissertation here at the University of South Florida, the sequel, Darwin Strikes Back, I, I was looking at your book and then the um, the other book, The Fifth Miracle, if I remember, is the name of the book, uh, right. from uh, Davies, um, Paul Davis, um, in, um, I guess, formerly of Australia, now somewhere out there in western part of the U.S., but uh, his book and yours practically tied, but I gave the nose to your book as the best of the two. 
So uh, well, you, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd enjoy the the, the my memory of uh, just getting going extremely excited about your earlier books, and now we have the cells design which is a, a, a major achievement. By the way, you may be interested that uh, the book was given to me. Uh, look, uh, Bill, Bill Carl, you see that signature there? That is none other than Dr. Gills, the founder of the St. Luke's Cataract. Oh, wow. Isn't that impressive? And he says, uh, Fuzz, he says to Tom, and then he writes, more, more proof, and then yours, Jim, as in Jim Gills. That's great. Yeah. So the book was given to me by none other than Dr. Gills the uh, famous ophthalmologist. Let's jump in and get to the issue of uh, how you work out in this issue of going from DNA and RNA to proteins. There is a machine, which I've been studying for about 20 years or more, a little machine, which is featured in that amazing video, Unlocking the Mystery of Life, um, as uh, called the ribosome machine, and it is itself a wonder of technology. Tell us a little bit about how amazing this ribosome machine is and how it works. Just kind of give us a little tour of what's going on when DNA is read and, and then translated. Yeah, well, I mean, the ribosome in and of itself is an incredibly complex system that is uh, irreducibly complex. Uh, you know, it, it's got, uh, depending on the particular ribosome, has anywhere from two to three uh, large molecules called ribosomal RNA that kind of form the scaffolding for the machinery. There's a whole ensemble of proteins, anywhere from 50 to 80, depending, again, on the particular ribosome. And uh, this forms a, a, a large complex that essentially will read uh, the instructions that come from the DNA molecule uh, and tell the, the, the machinery how to assemble uh, protein chains. Mm-hmm. which are the, the functional expression of the information stored in the DNA molecule. And it really operates as a very sophisticated machine. Uh, there was actually just a paper published in the um, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences a, a few weeks ago where they showed uh, uh, the, the machine-like character uh, in terms of a ratcheting mechanism as the ribosome did its, did its operation in terms of assembling a protein chain. But it really functions like a very sophisticated Again, manufacturing line, assembly line, where you've got an assembly line-like process that step-by-step-by-step by step by step will assemble amino acids one after the other into a protein chain, again, according to the instructions. And so it's, an, an, again, an incredibly elegant system that is very machine-like in its operation and also it is you know, interesting in that here is this complex that requires proteins, again, to make proteins, so, you know, you can probably build an entire case for intelligent design just off the different features of the ribosome itself. Uh, an amazing system. Yeah, and I describe the ribosome to my students as after I sketch, a, you know, a picture of it on the board. I said it's like a tape recorder. Now, some people today say, so what's a tape recorder? But uh, I'm old enough to remember, you know, popping a tape and, and that little slender, you know, piece of uh, film goes by the reading head, and it's the reading head that turns those little magnetic patterns into into the sound, the music, the Beethoven, whatever, coming out of your speakers. And so, as I tell the students, you know, you have to read the information and turn it into a different form of information, namely mm-hmm. music, and in the same way, it reads the information from the little strip of, of RNA feeding across the reading head. I know that technically there's not a reading head, but there's something like it. And then it produces the music. In this case, it's the protein chain that is building up on one 
side of it or coming out one end of it. Now, when the protein chain comes out, it doesn't necessarily start folding all by itself. It needs a a little help from a barrel-shaped guy called the chaperone or chaperonin. Tell us about that if you could. Well, you know, really what is critical in terms of a, a protein structure is how that protein chain folds, and it has to fold into a very exacting three-dimensional shape in order for it to have function. Mm-hmm. And there are some relatively simple proteins that all on their own can fold into the right shape, but most proteins need help. And there are proteins called chaperones and chaperonins, two different types of proteins that are kind of doing slightly different things, that work together to make sure that that protein folds into the, the right uh, three-dimensional shape. Interestingly enough, some people even think that there may be part of the ribosome that actually not only may assemble the amino acid sequence, but that also may even help and assist with the folding of the protein chain itself as well. So Hmm. the ribosome may be even more complicated than we think. But again, to me, that's intriguing because these barrel-shaped structures that you're you're talking about, again, you know, um, make the, uh, the protein folding process itself in a sense, irreducibly complex, to use uh, Michael Behe's argument. And, uh, you know, again, it's a chicken and egg system where without the proteins, you can't have, uh, to fold the proteins, you can't have, um, can't have proteins that are made properly. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, in, impossible to envision how a system like that could have emerged through undirected processes, there has to be a mind mm-hmm. that is orchestrating and organizing that type of a system. And of course, the idea of a mind is really common to not only theistic faith, such as the Islamic, the Jewish, and Christian, of course, that go together because we share common roots in the uh, in the Torah, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, but uh, also, of course, Eastern faiths. But what is distinctive about the the Judeo-Christian, and specifically the Christian faith, is the idea that the Creator has manifested Himself with concrete evidence or hints or clues or indicators in history. And as you were making that pathway or going down that path toward the considering Christianity as a a life choice and and a true indicator of reality... Well, what what were some of the key turning points or evidences or scriptural ideas that kind of rang true to you? Well, uh, to me, it was the Sermon on the Mount. Hmm. Uh, as I um, uh, came to the recognition that there had to be a creator, I actually started down a path of universalism where I thought, well, maybe the different religions of the world are somehow all simultaneously true. That was an extremely naive position to take, but at the time it wasn't really that sophisticated in terms of the of a thinker, and philosophically or theologically speaking, uh, but that's the, the the path I was headed down, and and I actually was um, engaged to be married, and, and eventually married this, this wonderful lady named Amy. But she rededicated her life to Christ uh, during our engagement and began to share her faith with me. And and initially, I wasn't all that interested, but as we drew closer to the wedding, I felt that I owed it to her to at least be open to understanding and exploring the Christian faith, and got a copy of the Bible, and for the first time as a 23-year-old began to read it seriously. Mm. And uh, when I came through the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, as I you know, started with the, the Gospel of Matthew, and as I made my way to the Sermon on the Mount, I was just absolutely astounded uh, by the person of Jesus Christ, who seemed to have incredible insight into human nature, mm. taught with unbelievable authority, uh, and describe the lifestyle in terms of the standard that he held for his disciples that I wanted to live 
And I knew it was true in terms of the way that we should live, but I couldn't uh, hold up to that, that, that standard. And it came to face-to-face in a sense with the fact that I was a sinner. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the way, uh, somebody had given me, in, in the course of my journey, a little booklet on how to become a Christian. And so kind of read through that booklet at that point and surrendered my life to, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. But it, I would argue that it was, in a sense, a, a religious experience of sorts, where as I began to really openly contemplate what Scripture had to teach, the Holy Spirit revealed the person of Christ to me through the pages of Scripture. And I would argue that the, the Holy Spirit revealed uh, uh, the, 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 the Creator to me through the record of nature. So um, I see those two revelations, if you will, going hand in hand. Hmm. I'm, I'm thinking of the testimony of Dr. Suppy, the former chair of geology at Princeton University, who shared that it was in his pilgrimage uh, to the Christian faith that he was, began finally <laughs> reading the book of Mark, and he realized that the story of Jesus and the account of him was just gripping. He said he, he could hardly put it down, and at first the account of the miracles bothered him, but then the more he studied and reread and the more he considered it, he said, you know, Without the miracles, the story doesn't hold together. It doesn't make any sense at all. So he was actually challenged at one of the chapel services on the Princeton campus with the the famous um, uh, invitation from Jesus, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. For I'm humble and, humble and lowly of heart, you know. And so at that point, he turned and put his confidence in Christ and, and bowed, as it were, and uh, turned to the Lord. Uh, as, as that has happened in your life, you would say uh, further evidence, further thinking has confirmed your decision as a sound one? Oh, yeah. I mean, everywhere I look, I see the Christian faith confirmed, whether it's science, whether it's history, whether it's psychology. Uh, no matter where you look, it just seems to me that the Christian worldview and the teachings of Scripture just make the most sense, the most coherent sense uh, of the world that we live in, of, of human nature, mm. uh, of the struggles that we have, and, and of the joys that we have. Um, I, I've never seen anything in my mind that seriously challenges mm. the, 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 the truthfulness of the faith. Well, speaking of joys, it's been a joy to have you on the, on the phone with us here for Darwin or Design. I take my hat off to you. If I had a hat on, I would take it off and bow deeply to you as the achievement that you have brought to us, the cells design by Dr. Fuzz Rana. Fuzz, thanks so much for uh, joining us on Darwin and Design. Can we have you on again sometime? Oh, anytime. Love to, uh, love to come on. Thank you for having me, and thank you for your kind words. Okay, take care. Talk to you later. Bye. Well, Bill, that was a remarkable you know, conversation with an amazing Christian scholar who has done his homework and has shared from the heart his story, isn't it? Well, I just, you know, so many times in pop culture, Christianity is viewed as a less than intellectual pursuit. And to be able to hear somebody of such a sound intellect uh, articulate that uh, in both the sense of the mind and the heart mm-hmm. is just a powerful testimony. You know, and I was thinking, even as he was speaking, that Christianity claims to give the truth not only in, let's say, the scientific realm, but in the moral realm. And some people say, well, no, it's only good in the moral realm. Well, it's good in the moral realm, but it's also in the scientific realm. And and they are in the realm of history, in the realm of worldview analysis. It just makes sense from every way you look at it. So it's so much fun. I'm having far too much fun bringing this information to you all who tune in each week, I hope, on Saturday from 5 to 6 to listen to more evidence for design on Darwin or Design. Join us again next week and every week on Darwin or Design. Thanks.